from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling for The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, April 23rd. Today, the states that are rushing to reopen, reflections from survivors of the AIDS crisis, and the truth about Trump's immigration ban. So Georgia is kind of on the front edge of all of these states trying to reopen up their their economy. By Friday, they're going to be tanning salons, barbershops, even massage parlors and bowling alleys supposedly opening up, according to the Georgia governor. Today, we are announcing plans to incrementally and safely reopen sectors of our economy. By Monday, they're even going to have movie theaters and restaurants. They're quite aggressive in reopening the businesses. I'm William One. I'm a national health reporter for The Washington Post. Other states are looking to do the same thing relatively soon, right? There's a spectrum. There's a bunch of southern, especially southern states, that are really eager to open, and they seem to be rushing headlong into the reopenings. You have Mississippi, um, Florida, the beaches there are already open, six states in the southern areas, and then some in the Midwest, really kind of rushing into reopening. They're driven a little bit in part by a lot of pressure. There's economic pressure, but there's also a lot of political pressure. These are some of the same states where you saw protests happening uh, over the weekend, where Trump has been kind of tweeting and aching them on about, this is so necessary, we need to open up the economy, even at the cost of infections. So in Georgia, where some things are going to be opening as soon as tomorrow, are they in a better position than other states to start reopening? Are their coronavirus cases low enough or have they flattened the curve well enough that they can safely do this? That's the kind of odd thing about this is that some of the same states that are rushing into reopening, they're ones that are kind of poorly positioned for it. Georgia, for example, according to one model that's been widely used, they're one of the last states that should be reopening. Testing is really low. They've only tested less than 1% of their entire population. It remains a real problem there, uh, availability of tests. The few tests that have been done, the positive rate is quite high. It's 22, 23%. That suggests it's pretty widespread there, the, the virus, and it's still transmitting pretty widely. Um, so there's a lot of concern about Georgia. Some of the, the the state's own mayors, the residents are kind of telling the governor, please don't reopen. This is a foolish idea. I will continue to ask Atlantans is to please stay at home. And a lot of the models and experts all kind of agree, too. It's, it's probably a bad idea. There's just it's all going to end up in more cases and, and more death. And then what happens if that is the case, if there are more coronavirus cases after they reopen, more people who have to go to the hospital, more people who die? You reopen too quickly, prematurely, without any of the kind of safeguards you need, without the testing, contact tracing. What will happen is, it's almost guaranteed, is that infections will rise. It's just a matter of how much. So if infections do, in fact, rise too quickly, too high, all you're going to have to do is close back down again uh, because you'll have the same kind of thing we saw, you know, hospitals overwhelmed, worries about PPE, cases on ventilators, kind of a series of open and shut cycles if you don't do this smartly. 
The science of infectious disease is pretty straightforward. As long as you have a large population that's uninfected still, the virus is, is like a fire. It's just going to keep burning until it either runs out of fuel or something intervenes, a drug, a vaccine. But until that happens, it's just a raging fire that keeps going on. The only, the only thing you can control is how quickly it's burning. Is it a slow burn or a raging forest fire? So you mentioned that one of the reasons why folks in Georgia and in other states are trying to reopen sooner rather than later is because of the economic pressure of closed businesses and people losing their jobs, but also the political pressure. But I'm wondering if there is also a political risk here for the politicians in these states that if they make this big move to reopen their state and then they see the the number of coronavirus cases dramatically rise, that it's going to be blamed on them. There's a really big risk here. And uh, what you see is Trump kind of maneuvering very along political lines. What he's done basically is put all of the responsibility on the states, you know, kind of declining to take any responsibility. And then what that enables him to do is become like kind of a criticizer in chief. He's already criticized many states for not reopening immediately. But then if you do it too quickly and something bad happens, he can easily then say, well, you, you know, he can criticize you for that as well. You saw this happening on Wednesday night after he's been urging all of these states to reopen. Georgia made this move and then he came out in a press conference and then said, I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines. Even though he's been tweeting kind of that message consistently, it, it kind of like hanging out the Republican governor in Georgia to, out to dry. So at this point, we have seen some other countries that have begun the process of reopening. I'm wondering if there are any lessons from there that we can take in terms of how successful it's been so far and what factors are necessary to put in place to actually reopen in a way that is safe. We've seen several kind of countries now emerging from their peaks. So you have China, Italy, countries like Taiwan, Hong Kong. What's key from all of them is the two main tools that they've used to, to emerge. One is testing. We've been talking endlessly about that. The other is contact tracing, which we're starting to talk more and more about. The, the real problem with U.S. is that we are so short on both of those things. Testing, I feel like at some point, as long as the federal government intervenes, we'll get their contact tracing. You can't create that quickly. You need to assemble a whole army of uh, health workers. The one country to really watch is Singapore. So Singapore did amazingly well. It's been held up as the example for a lot of countries. Many uh, world leaders try to emulate it. They have so much uh, testing, so much contact tracing. But even them, what you're seeing now is in the last week or two, they've gone from cases in the hundreds to like more than a thousand uh, every day. What happened is this virus, it, it seeks out any vulnerability and exploits it. And so it finally found an, a, a weak point with Singapore, which was low-wage migrant workers packed in these dormitories. And so despite the massive amount of testing and contact tracing and very careful diligence, you, see, you just see Singapore kind of wrestling with another outbreak now. They had schools and businesses open. Their economy was great. They've now closed down schools in the last uh, few days, made masks mandatory. They were saying, well, Singapore has all this capacity. We in America have none of it. 
And all we're talking about is opening up our, our states and our economy. Uh, it's a, a little bit of a worrisome trend. William One is a health reporter for The Post. I don't know what's worse. When HIV was out, you didn't have to be this cautious, you know, with the gloves and the face mask. My name is Deidre Nottingham. I'm 69 years young. I live in Brooklyn, Fort Green area. I live in the first senior housing for LGBT. Deidre Nottingham is 69. She's a lesbian who lives in Stonewall House, which is the city's first LGBTQ-friendly, affordable senior housing center. So I'm very excited about that. During the AIDS crisis, she lost so many people. She lost a brother, two foster brothers, an ex-girlfriend, and dozens of friends from the pandemic, and ultimately decided to stay celibate for 10 years. I lost so many friends within a month's time. It must have been at least 10 to 12 people. At the beginning of this coronavirus pandemic was really scary, and it still is pretty scary. I mean, I think we've gotten used to it, but it was a really scary place to be. And how must it be to be an elderly gay person who lived through the AIDS crisis in New York City to now be living through this I'm Jada Yuan, and I'm a features writer for The Washington Post. There was so much discrimination against people who either had HIV or AIDS or could have had it. People didn't want to get close to them and didn't want to touch them in ways that were not at all based in science or based in how the, the virus is actually transmitted. But now we're in a place where actually getting close to people, touching people, having human interactions with people can actually be dangerous. And I wonder if that adds another level of, of complexity to this. When I talked to LGBTQ elders, what they said was that there was a distinct difference between the beginning of the virus and sort of the end when we knew more about it. But at the beginning, it was just thought of as like, you were gay, you got this thing. And no one knew what it was. No one even knew it was a virus. There was a lot of ostracization. But and the the thing was that there is sort of a parallel between intimacy on both of these viruses, because the way that you got it as as a gay man was just was seeking human affection and and seeking intimacy you had sex and that was how it was often transmitted and now the same thing is like you can't get close to people the difference that that they talked about was that was in the gay community you were able to go visit people there became there these like food trains for helping the sick and People would gather in community around someone who was dying and they they would sit together and you would be able to mourn someone's passing and watch them die in a way that you can't now. Do, do they feel like the activism that came up around the AIDS movement informs what they think people should be doing now, like some of the solutions to stop this from spreading? 
Well, Larry Kramer, who founded ACT UP, which was the organization that came out of New York City where activists would go and they would they would protest at congressional meetings and they would do lions and they would throw blood around and, and fake blood. It was very in your face and also really effective. He said that he would love to start an ACT UP for coronavirus, but that he's too old and doesn't feel like he has the energy to do something like that. And the folks that you talked to, did they draw any kind of connection in terms of the people who are most vulnerable in catching a virus, whether that be HIV or coronavirus? Several people I talked to did talk about the idea that for a number of years, Haitians were thought to be at an increased risk of getting AIDS. And so there was discrimination against Haitians. There was discrimination against you if just because you were gay people would walk across the street. They discriminated against immigrants. Like if you had HIV, you were not allowed to come to the United States. So there are some parallels on that track. And it was infecting people who lived kind of on the margins of society. And because of that, governmental attention wasn't being paid towards them. And I think that we see that also with the coronavirus in that we're only now just sort of starting to see that a testing center was set up in New York City in New York City Housing Authority in the Bronx. And the Bronx has the highest number of cases. It's the poorest borough in the city. And we're just now sort of seeing that kind of testing happening. And we're now just sort of seeing that, you know, people are are getting antsy and they're calling for for the city to come out of lockdown. But But the inequity of who's getting affected by this, I think, is probably going to reverberate. For people who survived the AIDS crisis and and watched so many of their friends and loved ones die, what did they have to say about, about how that will play out for us now after the time of coronavirus? Like the trauma that comes from being a person who survives this? Some of them felt a a certain amount of guilt for having survived. And I think there's a loneliness that came, especially from that. The deaths were so concentrated in one community here in the city that, you know, many of them came out with with an entire artistic community gone, um, their entire group of friends gone. I think that there's also a chance for renewal and that you don't know who's going to be around you tomorrow or the next day. Jada Yuan is a features reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing from immigration reporter Nick Miroff. On Wednesday, President Trump signed a new executive order. So the noble fight against the invisible enemy has inflicted a steep toll on the American workforce. As we all know, millions of Americans sacrificed their jobs in order to battle the virus and save the lives of our fellow citizens. 
restricting several categories of immigrants who are trying to come to the United States. I will be issuing a temporary suspension of immigration into the United States. You heard about that last night. By pausing immigration, we'll help put unemployed Americans first in line for jobs as America reopens. So important. The State Department gave out about 460,000 immigrant visas last year, and this order will apply to about half of that annual flow of, of immigrants, slightly more. And while it isn't quite the sweeping ban that he has been tweeting about over the past two days, it still restricts several important categories of immigrants from coming to the United States, namely the relatives of U.S. citizens and permanent residents, with some exceptions that include the spouses and children of U.S. citizens. The order will be in effect for 60 days, but the president has made it really clear that this is contingent on the state of the U.S. economy, the labor market. It would be wrong and unjust for Americans laid off by the virus to be replaced with new immigrant labor flown in from abroad. He says the move is necessary to protect U.S. jobs and U.S. workers from competition. We must first take care of the American worker, take care of the American worker. But notably, this order is not going to apply to temporary workers. It only applies to immigrants overseas who are seeking green cards, trying to come to the United States. It's important to note that some immigration restrictionist groups have been unhappy with this order so far, um, even though they have been supporters of the president's immigration agenda. And that's because the executive order doesn't apply to temporary workers. They say that those are the workers who are coming in and creating direct competition for U.S. jobs. The president has said that he is going to order a, a review of the impact of those policies, and he could issue subsequent orders. As we move forward, we'll examine what additional immigration-related measures should be put in place to protect U.S. workers. We want to protect our U.S. workers, and I think as we move forward, we will become more and more protective of them. But the fact that this executive order is so clearly tied to the state of the U.S. labor market suggests there's a good chance it could be extended beyond 60 days. The president and his most senior advisors, including Stephen Miller, have long been trying to revise and, and, and change the U.S. immigration system, particularly to make it much harder for the family members of U.S. citizens and permanent residents to come to the country. They call that chain migration. They've been trying to overhaul that system for several years without much luck. And now this pandemic is hit and the president is doing it by decree. Nick Miroff covers immigration and the Department of Homeland Security for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Now is a good time to catch up on recent episodes of the podcast, stories about testing and about the food supply, and even about art in the time of social distancing. Find our episode archive at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.
there's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.